0: All right, it's 1.30. Thank you all for joining us for the applications of RPA webinar.
1: I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to Senior Advisor for Enterprise Digitization at the IRS, Mitch Winnens.
2: Thanks, Kirsten. Just a, a quick mic check. Can you hear me okay, Kirsten?
3: Yes, we can hear you.
2: Okay, awesome. Thanks for checking. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, again, thank you for joining us. My name is Mitch Winans. I'm a senior advisor with the IRS Enterprise Digitalization and Case Management Office, new organization that was just stood up uh, a couple months ago. And on behalf of uh, ATARC and all of our great uh, panelists and speakers that we have here today, uh, thank you all for attending. Um, before I move forward too far, uh, happy fiscal new year. Uh, it was a, a, a historic and wild uh, fiscal, uh, fiscal year for, for everybody. Uh, no matter what your your role is, if you work at a government agency or you work for a private uh, company or a university or anybody that's involved in this space, there was a lot happening um, with, with uh, COVID-19 and the uh, um, uh, the change to remote working, uh, shifting priorities for agencies, also the uh, the challenges happening for, for us with our, our personal lives and, and families and things like that. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Um, it's important to continue to have these conversations, kind of looking at um what what you know what's happening in the government space what are agencies uh, you know kind of doing well what are we not doing so well which areas do we need to target for improvement and then one of my favorite topics um, is to look at how uh, tools and technologies can help us do that how can we drive efficiencies in our operations how can we help improve um, our employees experiences make their jobs easier and more impactful Um, how can we improve uh, customer experiences things for taxpayers or citizens the delivery of those those services how can we leverage um, some of what we're doing, looking at the data, um, being able to glean more insights from that, um, thinking about the future of work and future needs of our employees and future needs of, of citizens as well. So um, so really, really glad and honored to, to be here and be, be a part of this um, today. Thankful to ATARC for um, continuing to shift so many events that were supposed to be in person um, in the spring and summer and shifting them to virtual. Um, um, so hats off to Kirsten and the rest of the folks at ATARC for, for doing that so successfully um, and, and so well. Um, shameless plug, before I hand it off to our moderator and our great speakers today, um, ATARC is also uh, partnering with IRS to host an Emerging Technology Day event. That's going to be next Tuesday, October 13th. Um, it's a, it's a, a half-day event in the morning, so check out ATARC's website if you're interested in attending that. Um, IRS Commissioner Reddick is going to be speaking at that, as well as um, executives and leaders from different parts of the IRS. Uh, my organization, the Enterprise Digitalization and Case Management Office, is going to be featured as well as the uh, IT CIO organization and the uh, procurement organization and some other folks across IRS. So just wanted to uh, squeeze that in there. So thanks, Kirsten, for, uh, for mentioning that. Uh, I think uh, Kirsten also put a registration link in the, in the chat box if you're there uh, to get you to the ATARX website uh, website. Um, so with that, um, I wanted to, uh, uh, before I hand it off to Kathleen, our great moderator, um, just a big thank you to all of our great speakers today. Um, We've got a great mix of folks from some different federal agencies, some different private companies, um, folks that have some really, really great experience and different perspectives on automation and specific applications and use cases for automation. So today we're really going to look at different lessons learned, um, what are some of the common misconceptions? maybe what are some of the, the pain points or challenges that people are seeing or tackling, and then what are some of those bright spots and those opportunities um, as they 're related to use cases in the robotic process automation space? so uh, without uh, further ado or uh, further ado i 'm going to hand it off to our great moderator, um, Kathleen Walsh from Cognolytica. So over to you, Kathleen. thanks so much
0: thanks, Mitch. Thanks for the opening my remarks and we are very excited to have this panel with us here today. I know it 's um, a big panel, but it's an incredible panel as well. So I'm really excited to get insights. I wanted to do a quick introduction of myself and then we will introduce all the panelists so everybody knows who's speaking today and then we'll get started with the questions. So I'm Kathleen Walsh, I'm a managing partner and principal analyst at a firm called Cognolytica. We're an AI focused research, advisory and education firm and we're based in the DC region. I'm very excited to be here today. I'm also the um, one of the analyst chairs for all of the AI working groups with my colleague Ron Schmelzer. So we love this RPA group and I'm excited to be moderating this today. I wanted to kick it off by having all of the panelists introduce themselves and then give their definition of what robotic process automation RPA is. So I'll work left to right from my screen. So Carl, can we start with you? Um. Yes.
4: Um, again, thanks um, for having me today. Um, my name is Carl Campbell. I'm the senior procurement executive at the Department of Labor. Um, I have almost 40 years of um, government, federal government service, and I've spent the last, you know, 20 years in the acquisition field. Um, so when Mitch was talking about the end of the um, the fiscal year, there, you know, we just, you know, underwent, you know, the f- end of the fiscal fiscal year at Department of Labor. So I knew exactly what he was talking about. Um, what RPA means to me. Um, I'm not going to bore you with the textbook definition because I know you guys are all IT savvy and I won't waste your time with that. However, I will tell you what it means from an acquisition um, perspective and what it means for the DOL acquisition community. Um, For us, it's a game changer. It's a secret weapon that will move the acquisition workforce from... Low value work to high value work and get us to the spot where, you know, we are getting that best value for the government that we are always in search of. Um, So that's what, you know, um, RPA um, means to me means to the Department of Labor and acquisition workforce.
5: Thank you.
0: Great. I like that definition. Bill, um, let's go to you next.
5: Thanks Kathleen, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, My name is Bill Bunce, I'm the Director of Public Sector um, at Automation Anywhere. Automation Anywhere is a global market leader in robotic process automation. Uh, My definition of RPA is, RPA is software that emulates the behavior of a human to execute a business process or a mission either as a digital assistant or autonomously.
0: Great, Tony? You're next.
3: Thanks, Kathleen. I really appreciate it. Uh, It's good to be here. Um, My name is Tony Sanchez. Uh, I'm the Federal Technical Director at Veritone based out of Southern California. As a 13 year Air Force veteran and ex Intel analyst, I devoted my career to solving uh, problems with data and machine learning uh, and to help create new capabilities to enable future Intel analysts. Um, Veritone, uh, just a little background, we provide commercial and open and an open marketplace to cognitively enable your organization at scale. And through our operating system, AIware, we enable organizations to have access to hundreds of commercial and proprietary AI cognitive services and the ability to adapt those services um, to your legacy applications and operational processes. Um, in regards to RPA and IPA, We we drive advancements uh, ranging uh, from markets and advertising, legal compliance, federal and state uh, governments. So uh, RPA, you know, I I think about um, my career starting off in the Air Force as a target tier many years ago, and I feel like we've been doing RPA forever, right? It's 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 the point of how do we how do we uh, do what we do better. Um, uh, do more with less and really with the goal of of automation and to me rpa is really breaking down those repetitive tasks that can easily be achieved by digital means whether it's a bot an algorithm scripts whatever that may be if it saves you time to do those repetitive things you know that's that's a step in the direction of of achieving some level of rpa at veritone we we uh, focus a little bit more on, on ipa which is Referred to as cognitive RPA, where you apply AI uh, capabilities to to RPA and and allow the system to learn over time, apply uh, cognitive rules, um, and so forth. We have tools that enable you to do that. Um, Really, you can think of RPA as a subset of the overall digital transformation in your organization, really to help make your organization more efficient, uh, lower costs, and and move those timelines, especially when we're inundated with data. Um, that we have today. Thank you.
0: Great, thank you. Lou, you're next.
6: Hi, I'm Lou Charler, Deputy CIO of the Department of Labor. Uh, Labor has 27 agencies that are focused on the mission and providing services to the American people. So in in layman's terms, I would say um, RPA bots work like a digital assistant. They do those routine repetitive tasks that otherwise would eat up employees valuable time. It frees them from the low value work and allows them to focus on the higher value mission tasks.
0: Great, thank you. Rajiv, you're next.
1: Thank you, Kathleen. <clears throat> thank you, ATORC, for having me here. Uh, I'm Raj Dolos. I'm the Chief Technology Officer uh, for National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, um, which is part of Department of Transportation. Uh, I'm, I'm really new there. I, this is my first, this is my fourth week in DOT. Um, so I'm so new that I'm speaking for myself at this point. <laughs> I'm not speaking for DOT. Um, but um, before DOT, I was in uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office for nine years. Um, I was very engaged in the RPA program there. Actually, we stood up from ground up. Uh, and I have about 20 odd years of private ser- sector experience as well before I came to the uh, government sector, um, what does RPA mean to me? Um, I look at RPA really as empowering humans to do more thoughtful analytical way that only humans can do uh, in my mind, taking away some of the the road tasks that that we make our employees do, taking those away really makes them more efficient and more productive as we look as we move forward. Um, repetition is is a killer in my mind. And when we take that away and assign that to a software to do it, um, we improve the quality of that, as well as we make the humans more productive. And by the way, RPA is nothing new. Um, Tony mentioned that earlier. We've been doing automation, process automation for many, many years now. We just called it different things. This is the maturation of that, that process and we're calling it robotic process automation now. Back to you.
0: All right, thank you. Alan, you're next.
7: Thank you for having me. Um, I'm Alan Zimmerman. I'm founder of OpenARP, um, a company that develops two open source products, an RPA product and an automation platform. And and to me, RPA is the more old school version of RPA, where we're using the user interface instead of APIs for automating something either fully automatic or while assisting the user. but, but for a lot of companies, RPA has become kind of the verb you use for any kind of automation. And therefore, I also believe looking at the broader picture is important when talking about RPA.
0: Great. Thank you. George, you're next.
8: Hi, Kathleen. And uh, thank you and ATARC for pulling together this uh, rockstar panel of uh, folks from both industry and government. Uh, I'm George Ducek, the CIO and Director of Information Ops at the Defense Logistics Agency. And for folks who don't know what DLA is, it's a uh, working capital fund uh, defense organization, does about $43 billion a year in revenue, has about 26,000 people, and manages nine global supply chains that provide really all the consumables for our uh, DoD warfighters, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, and Space Corps. Uh, as well as uh, some state and local government uh, is, I should also say, the whole of government, uh, FEMA, DHS, et cetera, and in some cases, uh, foreign governments for foreign military sales. Uh, before that, I was a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, in OSD, then before that, founding director of DIUX uh, Innovation Cell out in uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, for DOD and before that lab director up in Rome, New York for the Air Force's Information uh, Directorate that did uh, C5, uh, Command Control, Communication, Cyber, and uh, uh, R&D. So, uh, definition of RPA I'd like to look at is uh, training a non-human digital workforce to work 24-7 on defined structured uh, business processes.
0: Thank you, guys. You know, I really enjoyed that. Everybody had a slightly different definition of what is RPA. So this should make for a really great conversation today. I wanted to get started by asking if you could share some use cases to how you've successfully applied RPA, either at your agency or company. Maybe you can talk about a pain point that you used RPA to help solve. I know that a lot of people look to, um, for guidance, you know, when they want to get started, they want to see use cases, they want to see how people have had success. So I would love to hear um, some people's stories about that. Who wants to get started?
4: Well, Kathleen, I'll go ahead and get started. Um, so the Department of Labor partnered with the General Services Administration um, Centers for Excellence in February um, to support our efforts across IT modernization and the scal- scalability of our enterprise-wide shared services you know capabilities, including you know RPA. The partnership, you know, allowed us to um, to combine expertise across DOL and GSA to formulate a successful path forward in using um, RPA or, if you would, hyper you know automation. Um, we uh, basically um, um, constructed in a three bots, you know, software applications that run simple and repetitive tasks. Um, They're now in production and we're um, hoping to, by the end of this calendar year, to have them ready to go. Um, Two of the applications are with my office and um, the other one is with Lou's office. Um, For the first two bots, you know, with my office, one supports the contractor responsibility determination process um, to help select eligible uh, vendors for government contracting. And for those of you who are in the contracting arena, you know um, the issues or the concerns that we have with responsibility determination. You know that uh, with each and every award that we make, we have to make a responsibility, responsibility determination. Um, We wrapped up the end of the fiscal year a few days ago, and we awarded 6,500 actions. That's a lot of responsibility determination. Um, The other bot was for um, exercise of options um, uh, to process, um, to help execute contract options in a timely manner. Um, you know, if a contract is not uh, um, the option is not executed in a timely manner, that could lead to a lapse in services and reprocurement. Um, so it's you know that is a critical bot for us to make sure that you know we save a lot of time in reprocurement. And the third bot is basically a market research bot to process um, to help find products and services you know that are out there. Um, sometimes we get hooked into this, you know. Um, Uh, this routine, and we don't normally go out and basically, you know, do as much or cast a wide web for the market, you know, in the market to get the products and services that we need. So this bot will help us to do that. And that one, again, is in Lou's area. So um, that's just, you know, um, uh, some areas where we have, uh, you know, applied RPA at DOL. That's great. Um, Lou, did you
0: want to pick it up and talk about that last bot?
6: Sure, I mean, uh, and, and thank you Carl for for um, mentioning the market research bot that we had. Um, Carl mentioned that that's in my shop, but one of the things that's, that's really unique and exciting about RPA is the ability to scale it out and, and reuse code or these bots to do different mm-hmm. things. So as Carl said, the market research process that goes out and determines the new products and services that are available, it scans the web and goes to to specific sites and, and pulls that research together. Mm-hmm. This is going to bring a lot of value to the department. We set up a, a very solid infrastructure and an IT governance process to support our RPA. You know, I know later on in, in the, uh, the webcast, we'll be able to talk more about that, but um, we're excited about the the bots that we've we've uh, put in place.
0: Great, thank you so much. I know that that was kind of a government perspective. Does somebody from industry want to jump in and share their perspective?
5: Sure, Kathleen, I'd be happy to go. Uh, Yeah, I had four uh, bots that I thought I'd share um, quickly. Uh, Interestingly enough, the first one uh, is for contractor responsibility. So similar uh, to the one, Carl, that you mentioned at Department of Labor. So the U.S. Army has deployed a bot. Uh, They held a contest and got over 200 uh, submissions to name the bot. They ended up picking DORA has the bot. Uh, so that stands for determination of responsibility. Um, for the army that bot is run, uh, over 2000 times a week, uh, across the acquisition, uh, community in the army, uh, roughly 750,000 times a year, uh, reducing the amount of time it takes to do the contractor responsibility, uh, significantly, um, their own, um, analysis shows it's saving the Army $29 million a year. It took roughly um, under three months to deploy that automation. Um, second automation, um, uh, and by the way, all of um, these are automations that have been deployed by um, contractors um, uh, partners of Automation Anywhere, that one uh, was developed by an Alaska native company called Coniag. Uh The next one was developed by a partner of ours called Agile Defense, uh, and it's simply called the StigBot. Uh, it's currently being prototyped at US Transcom uh, to um, uh, look across a network um, for Stig compliance. Uh, so this is a process that was... Um, significantly manual in nature uh, and would take place, you know, uh, roughly one time a year. So by automating the process, uh, we can speed up that process and uh, run it on off hours, uh, pretty much run it whenever, whenever they want. Uh, again, saving hundreds of hours uh, at that organization. Uh, the next bot um, is uh, controlled unclassified information, or the CUI bot, um, of which um, often PII is is a, a common you know subset of the CUI uh, use case. Uh, this is a bot uh, that was uh, developed um, uh, as a prototype. Uh, for the Department of Education by a partner called Node Digital. Uh, This bot, uh, you can pass it any document. Uh, It will apply the CUI standards uh, and tag that document uh, appropriately, um, uh, certainly flagging things like PII data that might be uh, resident in a document, and then send that document back uh, within a matter of you know, minutes or so to the uh, requesting person, uh, again, saving a significant amount of time and potentially errors um, in, uh, in the process. The last bot I wanted to mention is a Section 508 compliance bot. It was developed by a partner of ours called UVS uh, for the U.S. Census Department. Uh, That bot um, scans uh, primarily websites, but uh, also any system for 508 compliance and uh, compares that against a self-reported VPAT um, to identify uh, any errors or um, issues that might need to be addressed related to 508 compliance. Back to you.
0: Great, thank you. Um, And I just wanted to also let everybody who is joining this webinar today know that we are going to have some time to field Q and A from the audience. So if you do have any questions, please make sure to type them in the Q and A section, and we will um, do our best to get to everybody's questions. But moving on to the next question, now Uh, you know it's great we've talked about the definition of RPA, some use cases, but Let's talk about ROI now. You know, what kind of ROI are you seeing when you're implementing RPA? And this doesn't necessarily need to be cost perspective. So, you know, cost savings are great, but also maybe you can share time or man person hours that you're saving. You know, how, how have you been able to reduce the workload for people so that they're actually be able to do more of that high value work? Um, Tony, why don't we start with you?
3: Oh, thank you, Kathleen. I appreciate that. I mean, that's a really good question, um, especially when folks are looking at RPA for their organizations. They're, they're always kind of bottom lining it. You know, why, why do I need this? And mm-hmm. I can tell you from, from our perspective, it has huge advantages to um, labor and man hours and processing. And I'll use the example of, of something like redaction, where you're, you're combing through hundreds of hours of surveillance data and you've you've got to do a FOIA request where you've got to produce the data with with only certain faces being shown. And we've done this for for border services and for specific FOIA requests where um, uh, hours of of footage has been um, processed um, and redacted in in less than three hours. So uh, normally a manual process would be very, very time consuming and very, very expensive. You know, just from a whether it's processing, um, looking for things in data, uh, transcribing, translating audio, um, identifying faces, um, you know, you could go on and on um, where this could be helpful. But even at the, at the processing level, being able to monitor um, uh, processing of, of, of computer engines and AI capabilities, you know, making sure you're really efficient uh, with your CPUs and GPUs is a way to apply um, RPA monitoring and, and and services there. So um, we kind of hit the gamut with that and and focus on where we can add value very quickly. Whether it's whether it's working in things like energy um, to to optimize and synchronize smart grids, you know those things require bot-like processes and services to. Um, to kind of like make and make energy production more predictable, reliable, and cost effective. You need to be able to look at prior data and look ahead uh, in future data to make those assessments, analysis, and to provide direction.
0: Great, thank you. Um, Raj or George, do you have any ROI insights that you can share?
8: Uh basically, at the, we, we've been on this bot journey for about 18 months now. And uh, over the first uh, year, fiscal year uh, uh, 19, we did about 50 bots. And last year, ending you know just a few days ago, we did about 100 bots. And we add up the uh, total uh, labor hours. It's estimated to be about 220,000 labor hours, uh, which seems like a pretty big number. Uh, and our bots span everything as you 'd imagine from uh, at the l a from acquisition the supply chain administration to inventory reconciliation, as Tony mentioned, FOIA is a pretty popular one because that saves a lot of time but uh, one of the things we discovered early on though was you know the two flavors of bots right there 's the uh, attended and unattended flavor, and early on, we did a lot of attended bots and didn 't get a whole lot of savings because the credentialing and things that the uh, person who was you know running the bot uh, were being used by that you know uh, that person's machine was being occupied, so either they read the paper or it did something else that was you know not with their IT so we've pretty much focused this entire last year on uh, producing uh, unattended bots uh, to get these sorts of cost savings uh, in addition to cost savings though I think it was mentioned that accuracy also has improved uh, you know fat finger things in uh, so the human error is taken out of it. And then uh, something that's not widely reported, though, and is very important for a combat logistics agency is speed. So we could process and get things done more quickly, which keeps our customers happier uh, by using the bot, too. So.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I know, you know, everybody always focused, focuses on cost, and that is an incredible uh, factor when looking to implement RPA, but there's a lot of other savings as well. Accuracy, for example, you know, uh, can you put a price on accuracy? Not having to do things twice. <laughs> um, Raj, would you like to share some ROI?
1: Yeah, so you know, most of the points that I've, I'm about to make have already been made by by the panel, so I don't want to harp on those. But accuracy, improving the quality of the work, is incredibly critical. Uh, and in ROI, uh, when we all only look at the number of hours saved, that doesn't always get captured accurately. Um, the other thing is getting, getting tasks completed, um, whether it's an unattended or attended mode, uh, irrespective of that, getting tasks done in a timely manner. So the dependencies that are that are there on completing the task can not proceed forward without getting stalled. Just because someone's not there at a the desk today, they're on, on vacation, the task doesn't get done. Those, those things get go out of the equation as we start deploying software that allows you to do the, some of the re- repetitive tasks that are required, especially in procurement area, financial area, um, you know, these are very critical tasks that are time sensitive um, in cybersecurity as well. Simple thing as having uh, and ensuring that the reports are generated in a timely manner. Our folks are informed in a timely manner to complete some of the points so that you don't get dinged by someone else. These tasks can be done by the robots. We don't need humans to be doing sending an email to someone saying, hey, you got to finish this by tomorrow. You can have a robot, a bot checking that for you and informing people. So those are very critical. I think we need to take those into account as well.
0: Great. Those are all great examples. Now we have a question from the audience and it kind of fits in. So I, I'm going to take it now. And George, I know you touched upon this a little bit, but which of these bots are attended and unattended?
8: Uh, it depends on the tasks that they're doing. Uh, and it really goes on you know, One of the things, and we may get to this later on, but when you're starting to do these uh, bots, you have to really look at the, process that you're automating. And then if that process can be automated without a person, uh, we use a, you know, attended bot. If there's some sort of requirement for a human in the loop, then I don't know, they would have to try to work with the the human to invoke that process at a particular place and time. But generally, uh, more and more, uh, in fact, exclusively, we've done unattended bots to get the the biggest ROI.
5: Kathleen, for the four bots that I mentioned, those all four of them are unattended bots uh, and you interact with that bot in in different ways, Um, uh, the one typical way. So in the Army for the DORA bot, the Determination of Responsibility bot, um, the contracting officer would send an email to the bot. So the bot has an email address, it has an identity, it receives email. Um, It does the analysis and emails a response, which in this case is a Word document, a a federal form that gets filled out. Uh, appropriately emails that back to the contracting officer and the contracting officer then signs that form and and loads it into the contract writing system um, so that's that 's the way they they interact with with those um, when I look at attended automation i I generally think of those uh, as a digital assistant so what is a process where you know, I can stop for a minute, um, as George was saying, have the bot go do something for me and I'm gonna wait for that bot to come back. If I don't wanna wait, then, you know, generally I would wanna deploy a, an unattended bot uh, and I can get the answer back when, whenever it's convenient for me.
0: Okay, great. I think that was very helpful. Um, I'll move on to one more question that we had prepared and then we're getting a lot of great audience questions, so I'll open it up to them. In general, what are some lessons learned that you can share from implementing RPA? And Alan, maybe we'll start with you.
7: So, sorry, <laughs> what was the question?
0: What are some general lessons learned that you can share uh, when folks have implemented RPA? You know, what are some so, of the do and
7: yeah, don'ts? Yeah. And- so, so, so. Considering governments are the goal, uh, are, are the target here. Uh, one of the things that that I run into quite often is that when a department starts looking into RPA, they're not thinking so much about the regulatory demands that there are. That you need to log what is actually being automated on which citizen. That you have to have strong security around, you know, where you're storing data and how we're doing all of that. So that that often gives issues. Also, uh, in smaller departments, often they don't have the necessary power to get bot-specific accounts, which is a big issue when you have to comply with GDPR uh, here in Europe. So, so they will be running bots in context of users, which is a very, very bad thing. So, so that's that's one of the things that we definitely need to to hook up into, or you know, be be better at. Um,
0: Okay, great. Does anybody else have any any insights they'd like to share? Lessons learned. Raj, it looks like you're nodding your head.
1: Yeah. So I, I have. I mean, I can I can start listing things that um, we did well and we learned as we, we we stood up the RPA program. One of the things that um, is is very important is to have a community of practice, in my mind. Your your agency, your company needs to be involved in a a diverse manner so that there is a good community of practice and you're collaborating across different uh, organizational units so that you are not repeating everything that other wants to do as well. So you have a centralized community of practice, but you also should have a federated development model. Meaning you don't want to do, have developers centralized in one area. You want to other want to have organizational unit explore uh, our bot development capability with a caveat that you want to make sure that you just don't go, you don't distribute and disperse this too far, because eventually you are going to lead too many licenses for developers. So you got to keep that in mind. The second thing is making sure that your processes are well defined before you jump with both feet and then start developing bots. And then you wind up with bots running amok without any appropriate organizational process and a governance process for the bots to be managed properly. The third thing is making sure that you have a clearly defined identity management solution installed so that you know who's running what. And that way you have a mechanism to go back and figure out if a bot did run amok and did something that was. Uh, that was uh, not expected for the bot to do. And then you do need to have a proper governance model that allows you automation that that includes automated testing, uh, you know, potentially leveraging your CI/CD pipeline. So you, you follow the same good engineering practices of developing a bot software and deploying the bot itself. So you don't have to do it separately. You follow the, what you have already. If you have a good Practice setup, but at the same time, don't get bogged down with a heavy SDLC. This is not an SDLC-driven process. It's about it's a light. It's supposed to be a lightweight process. So, so I, I, I could go on for more, but I want to give opportunity to others. I have a feeling that a lot of folks will have similar experience that I'm sharing here. And I, you know, I'll, I'll keep quiet for a bit now.
0: Thank you for those insights. Does anybody else have anything else they want to share before I dive into some of the audience questions?
1: Or
4: Kathleen, Kathleen. Um, uh, go ahead, go ahead, Lou.
6: All I wanted to share was uh, one of the the big lessons that labor learned is um, you need to fully understand the business need for automating a process. Mm -hmm. And you have to make sure that the process that you're automating is a good process. RPA won't fix a broken process or make a non-valuable process valuable. You have to fix the process first, clearly define it, and then use RPA to automate it and gain that additional value.
4: Okay. And Kathleen, if I could just add to what Lou just stated, I think it's um, important, that, important that we engage uh, the folks on the ground that are currently um, uh, taking care of the manual process, you know, to ensure that we know they know exactly what, you know, they're looking for. I mean, because, for example, in the procurement, um, uh, the responsibility bot. The contracting officers, the you know, the specialists, they knew exactly what what they need, and so you know it's not like you know talking to someone in OCIO or talking to the contractor. We had to engage you know the folks on the ground who really knows you know the business need you know know what they need on a daily basis to make this work. Instead of just going out there creating something, then trying to back our way into it. So early and often, you know, engagement is critical.
0: Yeah, these are all really great insights. And I think it's important to note, you know, you cannot, RPA does not fix a broken process. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) don't automate something that shouldn't even be a process in the first place. Um, That's a really big takeaway, I think. So one other, you know, now I want to turn this over to some of the questions from the audience, because they're really great. One question that we got is what, Issues do you have in maintaining RPA systems? And does it lock you into a legacy system to get value out of out of these RPA systems that you do end up developing?
6: I can respond to that. Um, I don't think that, that we got we, we necessarily get locked in. We made a big investment up front to make sure our infrastructure was Uh, the right type of infrastructure to support the bots. We didn't want to have the the bots run amok, as somebody said before. Um, and, And one of the examples was for the attended and unattended. There was a valid point brought up about the attended bots taking up computer time, so that sort of locked the person out. One of the things we've done at Labor is is look at a VDI solution. So even with our attended bots, we have another way for the uh, the, the end user to use those bots without tying up their machine. Uh, The other thing that we've been very cognizant of is we weren't necessarily striving for perfection out of the box. Nice thing about the the bots is you, you don't get locked in on them. You can program it to do basic functions, and then as you identify new things that you want to accomplish, you can add on to those bots and increase the functionality based on those end user requirements. So you really don't get locked in necessarily. It's an evolving uh, task that you have to, to keep apprised of the business requirements and make sure those bots are meeting those needs.
3: We could add to that as well um, actually RPA is perfect for um, organizations that have legacy systems in place I mean if you're doing a true uh, you know business process automation where you do an end-to-end and you need to fully scale your system um, um, RPA allows you to do only those specific tasks and not interfere as much in, in your overall processes to gain efficiencies you know one thing I would I would consider is making sure that your um, RPA software your your applications are flexible and and they can adapt to a changing mission easily um, you know versus moving towards a point solution to something that can extend and apply to various processes uh, Scaling RPA can be a little challenging, especially when you throw hundreds and hundreds of bots at something from a standpoint of maintenance maintenance costs and and what in training um, can take up time so really depends on the problem and knowing your, your business model and your business processes to uh, apply the right RPA solutions there.
5: And to follow on to uh, Tony's point on scalability, you know, as you're looking at uh, platforms to build uh, an RPA program on, um, you know, I agree with uh, most of what people have said, which is you know j- just get started, uh, but what I do see, uh, and I do think uh, d l a is maybe uh, an exception. With you know 150 or so bots deployed, most organizations are still uh, in the proof of concept phase, in the piloting phase, experimenting phase. Uh, as you do look to um, you know scaling to the thousands of bots um, that eventually will be uh, in production, um, you know at that point um, architecture uh, and scalability really does matter. So. Um, I strongly recommend that you look not only at the functionality, but also um, how the um, platform fits into your, um, say, your cloud platform strategy uh, and your overall architecture and integration with the rest of the systems. Because most organizations have, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of other software in the architecture. Great. Right.
8: Yeah, I just like to echo Bill's point. He he, he makes a great point. You know, you, you get into this without knowing where the end is in mind. And uh if you're gonna be producing, you know, thousands, ten thousands, a hundred thousand bots, it you know, architecture does matter. The uh the point about lock-in, though, I think there is a a, a potential to get lock-in with certain vendor tools. Uh you start off with uh, one set of tools to, at the beginning and then uh, uh another one comes along that looks a little bit better. Uh you have a sunk cost and you gotta make this decision. Are you gonna Rewrite those bots with a different uh, tool set that seems to be uh, better or uh, or just, you know, stay the current path. We do have an experiment going on. We're trying to use a couple of different vendor tools to see how well they actually interoperate together. where you are using two different vendor tools to solve a single problem. So uh, We're seeing how well that works out as well.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So for some people on this webinar, they may be new to RPA, and they have not deployed their first bot yet. So one of the questions we got asked is what are the security challenges with the first RPA implementation? So have you guys, did you run into any security issues or or not?
1: I, I can take a crack at that. Um... It's not just the bot, right? You're bringing a platform into your infrastructure, into your your environment. So in the federal government, and anytime you introduce a new platform, new solution, you have to get an authority to operate. Uh, In order to get that authority to operate, your cybersecurity team must be joined at the hip from the very beginning to make sure that the new introduction to the environment has been fully vetted by your cybersecurity team. It doesn't stop there, obviously, because there's a technology stack that you use. Uh, The technology stack uh, is going to continuously get CVEs. There's going to find some issues uh, constantly, uh, because the the RPA platform rides on top of something. That something is continuously has to be updated as well to ensure that you're meeting all cybersecurity goals and you're not going to wind up with vulnerabilities into 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 your environment. Same holds true for the code, the bot that you're developing. You need to make sure that you're taking appropriate measures so that the code that is being developed is is validated either through your cybersecurity team, hopefully not manually, but using some scanning tools you know, uh, static scanning or dynamic scanning. Make sure that the code does not have built-in vulnerabilities. And I mentioned this one thing before: you gotta have a good identity management solution in place so that you know exactly who is executing what. And then the back end of that is ensuring that you have some kind of aggregation capability, log aggregation capability that allows you to parse and make intelligent decisions out of that, and make sure that execution of the bot is following the. Uh, the predefined mode
0: great thank you Raj does anybody have any follow-ups for that
6: Kathleen I'd just say uh, what Rajiv just said all the basic uh, security practices that you use on, on any IT implementation have to be observed but the one thing I would add is is you have to look at your credentialing so for our acquisition bots not only do you have to have credentials within your own environment but depending on what the bot does, one of ours goes out and does a call to Dun & Bradstreet. So you have to make sure that you take that into consideration before you plan out your bot and you're able to get the access you need for all those other systems that you either have to pull data from or crawl in order for your bot to be effective.
0: Great. And that's actually a great segue into another question from the audience talking about how bots get credentials. So can you explain how the bots are given credentials? An example is how does the army handle DEERS? They don't, the, the person that submitted this doesn't understand the process, how the system knows the bot is authorized to access the system. Lou, Bill, anybody want to? Sure, I'll
5: I'll, I'll jump in. Um, So um, it it goes back to the conversation around attended or unattended automation. Um, In the attended automation scenario where the bot is operating as a digital assistant, in that case, the bot inherits the credentials of the person Um, launching the bot. So, you know, if let's say you're in DoD and you have a CAC card, you put your CAC card into the machine, the the bot then inherits your credentials and would log into Deers in, in your example, using your credentials. Uh, in the situation of an unattended automation, uh, typically what happens is um, you would apply for and request a non-person entity credentials, uh, and um, you would have to be granted um, credentials for that bot. And at that point, you know, and what I've seen, uh, I think the example often is NASA. That email credential, instead of being .civ, uh is .dot. Uh, you know, at. Um, what at nasa.gov would be, you know, dot bot. So in the email credentials, you know that you're communicating with a bot. And I think that's a creative way of doing it. But uh, um, so um, the the government folks on the line might have some more details than that. But, um, uh, you know, automating and securing um, the certificates uh, associated with um, the bots themselves, making sure that everything that is communication, communicated across the network is encrypted, including those credentials um, using two-factor authentication, third-party hardware, um, HSMs, um, all of that takes place. So that kind of takes the security to a different level. But um, I, I think it probably goes back to, if this is new to you, um, reach out to other folks like the folks that are on uh, on the line here who have done it before. Uh, and, uh, and ask questions about how they did it.
0: That's great, yeah, you know, I think definitely sharing is always necessary because um, some different agencies may have different, you know, requirements than others, specific requirements, but in general, I think, you know, the way that you went about the entire process can be uh, very translatable. So does anybody else have any other, you know, feedback for that before we move on to the next question? nope all right well we will move on um so this is uh talking about maybe some of the risks associated with developing a bot what risks are there potentially and then how do you weigh those risks to figure out if a bot actually should be used for this process or not um tony why don't we start with you
3: And you're on mute. Sorry about that. <laughs> I like to think in terms of um, when dealing with bots or even even as, as an algorithm or a model or whatever you're, you're implementing, deploying, um, is how that thing changes over time. Um, because these things tend to be a bit dynamic in that your data may change. Um, um, the environment may change, the system may change. So you have to really consider um, what your system is doing, um, the kind of results that you're getting. So to be able to monitor that and ensure that your bots are pre- uh, behaving as expected, and you're getting the kinds of results, you're getting the kinds of accuracies that, that you require. Um, and there are a number of tools out there that allow you to do that. Uh, we, we provide that as a service as well but um, these things don't tend to be um, static um, and I would be careful in just relying too much um, on one particular process running um, um, unattended uh, autonomously um, without monitoring.
0: Great. Um, Carl or Bill, did you guys want to chime in?
4: Um, thanks, Kathleen. Um, for me, um, as a senior procurement executive, as someone in the procurement field, or acquisition field, I look at it a little bit differently. I want to ensure that whatever we're getting um, is within the federal you know, acquisition regulations. So if you're developing a system for me, that system has to ensure that we, at the end of the day, that it, it comports with the, with the federal acquisition regulation. Um, we also want to ensure that it's, um, you know, our folks are still thinking, their analytic, analytical abilities are still there, that um, it's not too mechanical and that it is uh, meaningful um, that there is some utility in, in, in this bot, in the bots and we're just not taking away work. Um, and, you know, where we're not making it, you know, just moving them from low value to high value work. And so that's the way I look at it. I know we have a lot of IT um, folks on the phone, and they look at it a little bit differently. But for me, I still have to keep the federal acquisition regulations at the forefront of what we do to make sure that those things are intact, because that's what we go by. That's what we, you know, that's what we work with. So that's how I see it. That's, you know, that's how
6: we look at it.
5: You know, Kathleen, Catholic. the, oh, sorry, Lou, go ahead.
6: I, I was just going to add to what Carl said in, in earlier. The, the best way I could sum it up is treat bots like the self-driving cars. You don't want to put it on autopilot and then go to sleep behind the wheel and crash into the guardrail later. You have to do those checks to, to make sure that what the bots are doing are actually what they were intended to do in, in mm-hmm. returning the results right. that you wanted. You just
0: can't put it on autopilot. Sure. Yeah. We always say, keep the human in the loop.
5: Of course. Yeah. The only thing I would add is um, as a, as a RPA platform provider, the it, it's pretty consistent. The first question that we typically get is how do we ensure that these bots aren't going to roam the network and go off and do things that they're not designed to do. So um, you you have to follow, um, they are just software. So if you follow DevSecOps procedures, um, and you're gonna develop the bot to do one thing very specifically. In that case, it's the perfect employee because it only does one thing, it never deviates, never takes a vacation, uh, all of those things. But you wanna separate you know, the people that are building these bots from the people who are testing them, from the people that are deploying them. And as Raj talked about, the audit trail of um, what they're doing on a regular basis. Uh, And so long as you follow, um, you know, a good governance model, um, that bot will operate as designed. Now you can automate a bad process. We've talked about that. All it does is make a bad process faster. Um, But uh, so long as you're automating uh, a good process, Um, and following, you know, good uh, practices, um, you know, there's lots of benefits to come from it.
0: Great. Kathleen, one thing
1: if I can add to that is, you know, I've heard this, don't make a bad process faster or don't automate a bad process. In, In my mind, that is part of your bot development is really looking at the process and making sure that there is process improvement implicitly included as part of the bot development. You know, this is an opportunity to change something, not just automate it, but make it better so that it's not only faster, but it's more efficient and, and changes the way you do things. I think that's inherently, uh, it, in my mind it's implicit, but it, it is not implicit to a lot of a lot of the folks because they, they ask that question. Uh, so I say build it in as part of your bot development, make the process better. Process improvement should be part of that.
0: Yeah, I think that people should use this as a time to maybe reevaluate some of the processes that they have and see if they're necessary or if they can be improved on and to constantly be iterating with that. Um, so that's great. You know, somebody else asked about um, specifically who's building these bots. So within the COP question, are, there, are they using citizen developers or do they have a dedicated team performing the bot development? And then if it is a dedicated team, are they embedded within um, or representative from the business unit? So maybe we can have folks from both industry and government share their perspectives on who's actually creating these bots, and then what team—you know—is it—is it individuals? Is it a team? And then what does that team look like? Um, George, you want to get started?
8: Yeah, to be to be successful, it's got to be a multi—you know—functional team. It's got to have uh, you know your uh, IT department, but it's really got to relying on the expertise of functionals that understand the process, understand what they want to automate and understand what, what success looks like. So, um, so, so when we do that, just, just as was mentioned, our first step is really to do the business process reengineering engineering first uh, and then, you know, go into the bot development uh, uh, process with our, our, uh, you know, functional uh, sponsors. One of the things that we're finding out is that because, you know, we have a, can find manpower, you know, box around how much, uh, how many hours there are in a year to get stuff done. That if we really want this to scale, we have to do, as uh, you said, create citizen technologists uh, and then start to have our role be more, you know, the back end connections and let the citizen technologists, you know, take uh, take control of their IT future and do the front end of the bot development with maybe some coaching or some Sherpa ing, you know, by us. but. Uh, but if you really want to scale and see a lot of the monetary benefits, uh, you can't be all in the CIO shop. It really has to be across the organization.
0: Great, Alan. Do you want to add any insights?
7: Um, yeah, I mean, you said what should you be careful about when when implementing RPA? Um, one of the things that I often meet is that that people. Um, once it becomes an IT project, um, it becomes a very long project and it becomes very, very hard to get uh, results fast. So usually it's about making sure that it doesn't become an IT project once you get started. But if you then think you can then automate like an insane and just build out bots like you know crazy, then once you hit those 15, 30 bots, then you suddenly become a department of monitoring bots and breaking broken bots and fire fighting. All the time, and and that's why pretty quickly you need to put some process in place where you're iterating through the process and making sure that you're improving um, where you can, going to a, a APIs wherever you can, and so on. But but that kind of comes if you take the DevOps approach.
3: Kathleen. <laughs> Yeah, go ahead, I, I, always, I always think about it this way. It, it's it starts first with the question of is it is it a is it a build is it a buy or is it a license, right? Does this thing already exist? Because we don't want to reinvent the wheel if it's been done a thousand times and if it's a lot more cost effective, it exists in the market. So, uh, kind of going back to my, you know, infrastructure piece. You know, having building the right um, solution from the ground up so that enables you to bring in those external bots and engines to keep up with the market because the pace is moving so rapidly, costs are dropping. Um, The idea is how do you effectively take advantage of that without locking yourself into one path or the other or trying to build something um, where you're going to apply more resources than you need to.
1: So Kathleen, one thing I'll add is I talked about community of practice and governance in the beginning. Community, there exists a federal community of practice or RPA today. And one of my goals always has been to share uh, our lessons with the community, federal community of practice, learn from them and explore the possibility of bot sharing, if you will. You know, will, you, will you give us the bot that you have developed and you know, we'll do the same in, in return. Uh, that allows us to reuse software that has been built already. Uh, look at I mean think about a bot that logs into C7 and generates a poem report on a daily basis or weekly basis. Almost everyone needs that, so there's no reason to continuously re re redevelop that kind of bot. Um, the second thing is um, it it is great to think that we will do a citizen development and i i 'm not against it at all it's it 's good to have that. But you've got to have a good governance process in place that allows you to corral all these developers who are spread across non-IT organization and potentially, and I emphasize that, potentially may not follow the best engineering practices. We need to make sure that the bots that are getting developed do adhere to certain standards. You, You don't want bots running amok who are not under control and are not developed in a proper fashion. So... Citizen development model is a great model, Uh, I I agree with that, but you have to have some governance in in place that allows you to corral them a little bit. And the third thing I will add to that is, do look at federated development model instead of citizen that allows you to explore developers outside of CIO shop, but on a limited capacity. It's not free for all, but you, you vet the developer, vet the person who is intending to develop a bot for the organization. Now, if they want to develop a personal bot, No worries. But if they're developing a bot for the organization, you gotta be careful.
5: Kathleen, if I could just add one last thought on the uh, citizen developer model. Um, Obviously, um, one way to identify the processes is is top down, just to do an analysis of our our major processes uh, and document them and, and prioritize potential automations top down. The other way is to obviously reach out to the people doing the processes and ask them the simple question of, if you had a digital assistant, what would you want Uh, what would you want that assistant to do and aggregate those answers up uh, as well? And I'm not advocating for one of the other, both of those techniques are are helpful. Um, And so instead of turning the development over to the um, citizens or employees, the the people doing the processes today, one of uh, kind of a hybrid technique um, that we're using is simply asking people to record um, their process. We we call it process discovery. Uh, And so if they can record that process, what I can do as an analyst within uh, a center of excellence is I can then ask 10 people who do the same process to record their process. And then we we have a tool that aggregates those videos together. uh, And an analyst can decide, it looks like the common process is this, And oh, by the way, we were also able to see how long the process takes a human to do. I can then turn that over to somebody in the COE and greatly facilitate having a bot built. And then that bot is built following our our best procedures within the COE, um, making both of those work together, the end users, the customer, as well as the COE working together.
0: Great, somebody had a question about you know how do you even begin to determine what processes to automate so from the federal p- perspective maybe how are you going about evaluating your processes and figuring out which ones you should automate is it from a time perspective is it from a cost perspective is it from you know a low hanging fruit perspective and then from the industry side how do you go about talking to the government agencies that you're working with to help them determine which ones they sh- you know which which processes they should begin with. Um, maybe, I don't know, who wants to start? Otherwise I'm gonna, gonna just call on someone.
6: I can start, Kathleen. Okay. So this is our first foray into the RPA world. And that's why we team with the, the GSA Centers of Excellence. Somebody mentioned before not recreating the wheel. There's hundreds or thousands of instances out there where people have taken and created bots. And there's, there's Gartner is one example where you can go out and look at a, um, a spreadsheet that shows what recommended bots um, have been used for before. And we evaluate that against our staffing needs and, and what they're doing on a, a basis that it's, it's really rote work. And the thing that you want to keep in mind always is what's the return on investment? Are you saving money? Are you saving time? Are you reducing risk? Are you putting yourself into a better compliance model? And I think all those things have to be evaluated. I don't think there's much that can't be automated when you look at it from the big picture. It's just where do you get the most bang for your buck and what makes the most
7: sense? We'll
0: go to Alan and then Bill.
7: One thing we need a lot is that uh, someone gets the idea that RPA is uh, is super hot and you want API, uh, RPA and you, you run out and you find the, the process that you are doing a lot that you think is the most obvious one. And then you start to get a lot of, lot of negativity in the organization about doing that. And it turns out that once you start interviewing stakeholders, that that is actually a process that they like doing. That is not what they want help with. So definitely make sure you ask the people working with the process that you want to start automating that, that they also agree that's a good process for automation because you want the people that is doing the work right now being with you and not against you.
5: Yeah, that's great insight. Bill, you want to go? Yeah, f- yeah, for me, Kathleen, it, it always starts with a problem, um, you know, the government's got enough platforms, uh, probably doesn't need more IT platforms. So, you know, what are the problems that we're trying to solve? Um, I always um, begin to share, you know, sample use cases, uh, similar to the four that I shared earlier in the session, Um, you know, ones that I think might be relevant. Uh, And if that conversation turns into, well, that's interesting, but could a bot do this? Um, that's, that's what I'm looking for in terms of a conversation. Uh, And then it's relatively easy to try these things out and do a proof of concept over, you know, a couple of days and see, you know, you're not going to build the whole bot and move it into production. That's something else, but it's relatively quick to see, you know, could a bot uh, be used to you know, automate this process. One example is very recently, we're doing a lot of work around Internet of Things uh, and integrating uh, bots with sensors that are out uh, in the field, whether in the military or in the energy sector. And there's some pretty exciting things having bots run on devices um, uh, that are out in the field. So um, those are um, that's an example of something that came to us from a customer and said, hey, could a bot do this?
0: That's great. So, you know, to- Oh, sure. Tony, go yeah, ahead.
3: Just real quick, I would add to that. I I, I talked to a lot of folks um, with the idea of applying some type of AI or a bot and realized that, you know, their problem is completely different. They may have an ETL problem, right? Maybe they have data that's in .csv or spreadsheets and databases. So sometimes you go into with the best intentions as as a consumer to solve this problem, you realize you need to solve these other problems first. Um, and I would go back to just recommending, you know, talk talk to the folks that are doing the work that can help guide you before you start spending money on something that uh, opens up a can of worms and you need to do much more than you originally thought.
0: Yeah, I think these are great insights. You know, make sure that the process is able to be automated in a, uh, you know, reliable way. And also make sure that the employees want that process automated, because if you're automating the processes that they like and then leaving them with the ones that they don't, they're gonna be even more <laughs> disgruntled. <laughs> so that's not what you're going for here. You're going to let them have, you know, um, more of those higher value tasks and you don't wanna maybe take away some of the stuff that they like. So we have other, some other questions kind of digging into, you know, when you actually are building the bot and, and then you, you have it, you know, how are you handling multi-factor requirements? So maybe George will start with you. Did you have that issue?
8: Yeah, it's, I mean the credentials are the same as it would be if it was a person. You have the the uh, cat credentials, and then the uh, something uh, you know the PIN is uh, it's in- encoded, encrypted. So the bot has you know their PIN as well. So okay, just
0: great. like
8: just like a human.
0: Perfect. Yeah, I think it's important to just have these conversations in general, you know, and how other people are doing it and just, you know, how to to even go about thinking about what a bot is, you know, do you think of it like a piece of software, do you think of it like it's another person, and then go ahead and build systems or, you know, build the process that the bot's going to do around that. So I wanted to um, end this webinar today with a question um that we had back to our original uh questions that we had worked up for today for folks that are new to rpa and maybe they haven't had any implementations of it yet or they've just had a few how do you recommend that they approach leadership so that they can get buy-in of the bots and we'll go ahead we'll have everybody answer this so i'll start um up working my way down. So Carl, we'll start with you.
4: All right, um, Kathleen, I think this is an easy question. Um, <laughs> you know, what we did at DOL was um, we had a demo. Um, so GSA and um, Luz Area, Luz, um Shop, they came up and we demoed the, the three bots to our senior leadership. And um, so the, pr- uh, the proof is in the pudding, right? So they saw the bots and our, um, our leadership basically liked what they saw. I mean when you know they began pushing the buttons and they see how quickly the bot was working behind the scenes and by the turn of a head, it was done um, at the end of the the demo. they said, "You know what what else can we um, you know, um, make you know into a robotic you know process automation, what else can we turn into rPA so I think the easiest thing to do is to have a demo, bring leadership in, show leadership you know what this is you know what the bots can do, and uh, like someone said you know before they 're excellent, excellent." Um, but you know, I mean uh, opportunities for bots to be used across the government, uh, across the government, and where it's already in place. And uh, for us, that was the the, uh, the winner. Just showing it to our leadership, and uh, so we have this assignment now to take a look across you know our DOL and see where else we could um, use bots in other areas.
0: Great, and we'll go to Bill next, and then Tony um, to kind of get an industry perspective. You know, how do you Uh, How do you recommend people talk to folk?
5: Yeah, my recommendation is um, to, as I mentioned not too long ago, to start with the problem. Uh, so more than likely, you're going to start with one one automation, one bot. Uh, clearly define um, what the problem is that that prop bot is going to solve. What is the challenge that the you know the humans have today? It, it could be as simple as it's repetitive work that a bot could do, you know, faster, cheaper, quicker. Um, but also in your business case that you develop, you know, identify identify what you think the potential savings will be, how long does it, do you think it's going to take to build and deploy this bot, uh, and and go from one problem to another. Ultimately, um, you know, what will happen, as I've seen, is eventually people will be coming to you and assuming that maybe that event turns into a center of excellence for automation, but Um, you'll get to the point where people are coming to you with their problems. Do you think automation or do you think bots could solve this problem for me? And next thing you know, um, you will have a backlog of automations you can't get to, and you're going to have to be uh, prioritizing those. Um, But you have to start somewhere, start with a problem, uh, and convince convince your management that you can solve this problem with automation.
3: And I'll, and I'll sort of add on to what Bill just talked about. I'm going to come from the analyst perspective, uh, since I, I was one for many years. You know, it, it, it's the frontline guys, you know, understanding what they do and the hours they spend on repetitive tasks. You know, you start to uh, you start to pull out your hair if you're doing the same thing over and over again. You're not being very efficient. Um, you want to go home earlier. You know, these are things that that will help push these kinds of innovations. and. Then it comes, then it gets um, up to the managers. The managers need to recognize how much time their employees are spending on specific tasks um, and really investigate, hey, who, who can I bring in to evaluate uh, our, our workflows, our processes, or can we cut corners, can we um, improve efficiencies and make more money over time versus doing a lot of these repetitive tax- tasks. It really starts there, starts with understanding of your business processes and understanding that there are better ways to do things.
0: Great. Lou.
6: So I think one of the the things that you want to do is stress the benefits in in the return on investment, whether it be cost, time, uh, compliance. The other thing that I I would want to, to emphasize is we're the Department of Labor. So we have a, a very unique mission across 27 agencies and part of our job is to protect the American worker. And one of the things that comes up quite often is, you know, are, are these robots in this automation going to replace jobs? Um, it, it's, it's not to replace jobs. It's to take people and allow them to work uh, at higher value work that, that supports the mission in in essence, it should improve job satisfaction and increase staff morale as the needs for humans to conduct these administrative um, work, repetitive things, decreases, and they, they can really focus on it. So I think that's a big selling point.
0: Yeah, that's really great insights. A lot of people always have that discussion. They're afraid that bots are going to take away their jobs and artificial intelligence are going to take away their jobs. And so far, you know, we haven't seen that. And I think it's just, it helps them do their jobs better. So we always say, you know, start with that augmented intelligence approach where you're not replacing the human, you're just augmenting them and helping them do their job better. And we found that uh, you get much better buy-in from everybody when you use that. that and
6: if term. you ask them, you know, you're, you're king or queen for the day. What is it, you know, everyone has the things that they like to do at work and the things that they don't like to do. And you ask that question, what is it you do on a daily basis that you wish you didn't have to do? And a lot of times you'll find that automation opportunity because it says repetitive things that people just don't want to waste their
0: time on. Yeah, that's, that's great insight. Raj?
1: So one of the things COVID has taught me is really gotta remember to unmute myself every time I speak. <laughs> I still forget that, you know, once in a while. Um, great points by the by the panel so far, and, and I'm going to just touch a little bit on and steal some of them actually because I want to say the same things. Um, you need to have a good business case when you approach senior leaders, with, and you want to ensure that you have demonstratable examples available in your, in your business case that allow you to identify, or that, that, that allow you to um, solve identified issues that exist in the organization. Uh, they may be low hanging fruit, may, they may be the most complex, manual, tedious, repetitive processes that our employees do, uh, and converting those into a software assistant, digital assistant bot, whatever you wanna call it. How that improves the quality of the work And and takes away the tediousness of that work. I think it's it's good. The second thing that the business case must do is it it should outline, it should lay out How you're going to accomplish these things. It's just as critical to make sure that the investment in the platform, the investment in the personnel who are going to build these bots, test and, and deploy them is justified. Because if you can't, if you write 100 bots and you still are spending more on your bot platform uh, and you haven't really accomplished much then uh, Yeah, you have accomplished quality-wise good work, but you don't really have an ROI to show up for at that time. So you got to be able to show good cases that, that at least show that you're going to break even. And, and then the third thing is really, even in the business case, you've got to have a good governance model that, that allows you to justify a distributed federated development model.
0: Great,
8: um, George. I think it's uh, important to remember that you uh, automate tasks, not jobs. And uh, early on in our bot uh, development uh, journey, we uh, we did the you know the classical business case analysis, and uh, the folks would show what the uh, expected cost avoidance would be in terms of labor hours, uh, and that all worked fine until it came time to cash those uh, checks on uh, how many hours were you going to save? And then all of a sudden, managers got very uh, territorial and protective, saying that, "Whoa, we uh, we are not really saving all these hours," and uh, uh, because they saw it as a threat to you know their organization, they're going to now because they've automated things, going to have to give up some equivalent to uh, FTEs. So uh, we learned uh, that you really don't want to frame all your your benefits in terms of just strictly labor savings. Uh, because that does spook the herd sometimes. And they, uh, I won't say get uh, less enthused about it, but they will if they think it's gonna threaten some of the uh, uh, you know, the size of their organization.
0: Yeah, that's really important. I think you, know, you need to know who you're talking to and make sure that you're framing um, the questions and the responses appropriately. And then Alan, you wanna share your insights?
7: Yeah, I mean, a uh, Boston Consulting Group came out with a report about a year ago about the biggest challenges for for executives and and senior leaders and and digitalization was one of the main points they had and reskilling people because it it's not popular saying that it can cost jobs but it's often a result right i mean less job needs to be done. But if you go to healthcare, for instance, healthcare has a ton of tasks that can be automated and it's actually relieving people of a very stressful day. But you know, many organizations are looking at RPA, and many of those organizations, you are freeing resources to other tasks. Hit, find another job. So so you really, really, really need to get Well, well, the question was, how do we get leadership uh, to to buy in on this? I personally believe you need to start with leadership. If you don't have the leadership from the beginning, you won't get success. Depending on what report you read, um, I see numbers from 50 to uh, 66% of all RPA projects end after the POC and they never get past that. And, and the reason you don't get a lot of success is that there are people in the organization that gets affected, and you need people to be on board on this. And you do that by management showing support to what is going on. Um, so, so, so the leadership is, is one of the most important key, key stakeholders in this, if you ask me.
0: Yeah, do it from a top-down approach. Make sure that leadership's buying in before... Before you start with like a bottom-up approach and have people do things, so you know, I think I, I love to get everybody's perspective on this. I think that everybody has such incredible insights, and you know, many different agencies were represented here, and private industry as well. I think conversations like this continue to be needed because it just brings in different perspectives and lets people know what's going on in the market. Uh, so I, I want to thank everybody so much for participating in this panel today. Thank you. And I know there was a couple questions that we couldn't get to, so I'm sorry about that. But you know, feel free to reach out, we're always available. We're part of the RPA working group. So if you are not already a member, we encourage you to attend and come to our working group uh, calls. We would love to have you there. So thanks everybody for attending the webinar today and thank you to all the panelists for joining. Thank you. Thank you.
8: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Bye.